This podcast is brought to you by YearToSuccess.com, a free online course on success. Enroll at YearToSuccess.com. Hello and welcome to the Toastmasters podcast, the official podcast of Toastmasters International. Hello, everybody. My name is Bo Bennett. And I'm Ryan Levesque. And we're back for another edition of the Toastmasters podcast. Ryan, who are we speaking with today? Our guest today is educator and speaker Mark Williams. Mark is a Toastmasters from New York with an advanced communicator silver and an advanced leader bronze to his name. And he was featured in the member profile of the February 2018 edition of the Toastmaster magazine. The article is entitled Creating a Positive Impact. Mark Williams, welcome to the Toastmasters podcast. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here today. I'm looking forward to sharing my story. Fantastic. Mark, the article here chronicles your journey uh, going from an assistant principal at a great high school, your alma mater, in fact, and then transitioning, accepting a position at a historically low-performing and underfunded school and turning things around there. And we are definitely going to get to that. But before we do, I want to ask you about your origin story as a superhero, so to speak. I don't mean to make light of it because you suffered an unspeakably traumatic event at a young, very young age. Can you share that experience with us, please? I can. And I will tell you that the term superhero is very flattering uh, because one of the things that I've learned over the years is you could take some very painful moments from your past and turn them into very powerful moments for the future. When I was about three years old, I was living in Red Hook, Brooklyn, very low income, violent neighborhood. And one night I was sleeping on the couch and my living room because I didn't have my own room and probably about two o'clock in the morning there was this loud knock on the door and the man who I thought was my father went to answer the door and and as he turned the knob these two men forced their way into the apartment and, and and pushed him to the floor and then they dragged him to the back room where he and my mother were and I remember getting up off the couch and peeking behind the the, the corner of the wall. And I saw one of the men rip the telephone cord out of the wall. And I heard my mother screaming for her life. And I got so scared that I crept back to the couch. And I remember hiding underneath the pillows of the couch and shutting my eyes so tightly. And I fell asleep, I guess out of fear. And, And the next morning I woke up And I remember standing in the kitchen. My two aunts were talking to two police officers. My mother was sat, was sitting frozen in a chair and there were drops of blood all over the floor. And that's when I realized that the man who I thought was my father had been murdered. And we moved out of that neighborhood probably within a day or so. My family never spoke to me about it. My assumptions were always that they thought I was so young that I wasn't even aware of it. And it wasn't until many years later that, one, I found the courage to share the story with my family, 
who finally gave me a little bit more insight about it. And when I found the courage to share it with other people and found the power that in sharing my painful past, I was able to make a positive impact and inspire some people. Wow. Mark, can you uh, just clarify one point? You say the man whom you thought was your father. Okay, can you just elaborate on that, I guess? Yeah, yeah, I know. That's always a very weird part of the story. But as a kid, once again, my family didn't tell me a lot because I think I was so young. And so I was a kid who never asked questions. I was aware of what happened, but I never asked questions and nobody gave me the clarity. So for many years, I actually thought it was my father. And it wasn't until college when I finally moved out of our uh, the other neighborhood that we lived in in Brooklyn, in East New York, Brooklyn, and I was kind of cleaning out things and I found this letter from this gentleman who it turns out was my mother's boyfriend and he was a, a merchant sailor. And that's when I started to learn that I actually don't even know who my father is. So I grew up without a father. It took me many years to learn that it wasn't my father. And so that's why I always say the man who I thought was my father, because for many years, that is what I thought. Okay. Okay. I, I wasn't sure if this was at the time you thought it was your father, but it was some other guy who broke into the house and, and that, that part was unclear. Okay. Yeah, I got yeah, it now. No. I'm with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the perfect setup for a life of failure of deep mental health issues, uh, post-traumatic um, issues, but uh, obviously you've you managed to turn things around and, and get over that incredibly painful experience, or at least deal with it and, and manage it. Um, and I, I know that your mother was a very critical part of that for you. So how did your mother help you to beat the odds after going through an experience like that. And frankly, you know, being in a, not the greatest area where you grew up. You know, I, I, I credit my mother so much. You know, it's, it's interesting being a single mom, being a poor mom, being a, a, a widow, I guess, of sorts. My mother was so nurturing. And even though she shielded me from a lot of these things that happened, she was so caring. She was so involved in everything that I could do. And even when she couldn't help me out with homework, she was there. She always had this smile on her face. But the thing that I remember about my mother the most is that I knew that she, she always found a way to be happy, even in the saddest of situations. And so that inspired me to always try to look for a more positive outcome or, or a more positive perspective. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's very interesting growing up and seeing somebody who seems helpless, who always seems hopeful. And so I always grew up knowing how much my mother struggled, always being driven by, if she's hopeful in this situation, then I'm hopeful to someday put myself in a situation where I can help her live a better life. So she always drove me. It's funny, her helplessness kind of made me hopeful to help her. And that's what kind of drove me to uh, to do the things that I do. Nice. 
So as I alluded to at the beginning, Mark, here you are, you've you've gone on, you've started your career, you're working as an assistant principal at a great school, and you get this opportunity to take a position as a principal at a, a school that, as I said earlier, was low performing, underfunded, and you had 24 hours to make the decision as to whether you would take that position or not. What made you decide to go from what I imagine was a very comfortable position to taking on a a pretty seemingly insurmountable challenge? I guess it was a couple of things. First of all, it was very hard to leave my former school because I was a student there, because I had spent so many years there and formed so many bonds. It, It was tough. I think ultimately what encouraged me to take this opportunity was one, that conversation with a student from my former school who I ran into in the street one day, who asked me if I was still at Brooklyn Tech. And and he said, I really need to be at a school where there are other students who need my help, students who are suffering um, and struggling much more than the kids that I was currently serving. That really inspired me. Um, Also, while I was at Tech, I had an opportunity to write about my own story. Um, So I authored my own book and I started doing a lot of research into struggling youth. And I really saw this as an opportunity to not just write about it, but to do something about it. And it was a tough decision to make in 24 hours, but I saw a need and I saw a connection and I saw a way to fulfill a purpose at the time. And so you get to this new school, and there's this pretty dramatic transformation. And one part of your story that I I think I'm clear on, but I'd like you to clarify, when you got to the school, I understand it was, I'll call it a, a traditional high school, but one of the big changes that you made was turning it into a secondary school for journalism. Is, is that correct, or was there a journalism uh, theme, so to speak, already as part of the school before you got there? So let me give some clarity on that. Uh, we have a lot of theme schools in New York City. I'm probably not sure that's the same around the country. And the theme was already the secondary school for journalism. That was the name when it was first created way before I got there. And there were instances of creating journalism courses or programs or after-school activities. However, when I got there, anything that had they had tried to put in place with the exception of one journalism elective class, there was nothing journalism about it. So the vision was to be a journalism school, but the execution had not happened. So when I got there, my thought was, especially when I think about the fact that I went to NYU to become a journalist, that was a childhood dream of mine to go into the field of journalism. And with the public speaking and the communication, I thought this was a right fit. And I wanted to see if the words journalism were on the marquee, I wanted to see and try to make the vision a reality. How uh, integral to the school is journalism today in 2018? (sighs) So in the school, the toughest part about making journalism integral was the fact that it was, it's still a small school. Um, It still receives little funding. 
and I and I've learned through my time as a principal that the less funding you have, the more challenging it is to really realize your vision. And so while there are still some journalism components in, integrated within the curriculum, one of the hardest things that happened was losing the funding for strategic partnerships. Um, if I were still there, one of the things that I would want to do is try to build some of those strategic partnerships, um, whether it be pro through professional networks or personal networks, um, because I think that whether students are going into the field of journalism or not, what's integral about teaching journalism is the teaching of research, presentation, and communication, and questioning. And of course, those skills have much to do with your experience as a Toastmaster. When did Toastmasters come into the mix for you, and how has Toastmasters helped you with your various uh, career pursuits? I remember sitting with a coworker and helping her with a presentation. And I was talking about how much I like to be on stage because I hosted a lot of assemblies when I was at Brooklyn Tech and got a lot of opportunities to speak in front of crowds. And she was the one who first talked to me about being a professional speaker or a professional coach for speaking. And she gave me this DVD about being a professional speaker. And all I kept hearing was Toastmasters, Toastmasters, Toastmasters. So I looked it up. I found my local club at LIU Brooklyn Toastmasters. And I, I joined and I was so ready. I think I gave my icebreaker speech within like the first week. And it was a lot of fun for me because I like being up in front of an audience. But the reason why I talk so proudly about Toastmasters is because of how it not only transformed my passion, but it transformed my ability. And I talk about in the article about how I had a teacher come up to me one day and say, you seem so much more confident. And I realized that the only thing that I had done differently in the past couple of months was be a member of Toastmasters. And but behind the beyond the, the, the skills that I learned, beyond the confidence that I've learned, the networks have been incredible. And there's a lot of things that I've been able to do as a speaker and as an educator because of the evaluations, the networking, and the skills development of Toastmasters. So it's been an incredible, incredible journey. Uh, Mark, is the job very different that you're in now compared to the assistant principal? I, I know the, the, the setting is different, but the overall position between a, a assistant and the head honcho, uh, what, are, what are some of the differences and, and how did you handle those differences, those changes? Uh, the biggest difference is that you're in charge of everything. Mm. <laughs> your your name is, as, as a mentor once said to me, your name is on the letterhead. So whatever happens falls on you. And so being an assistant principal, you're in charge of, or I was in charge of my one department in my one little world, but now I was in charge of like the entire 
entire world. And I had to put on, as a principal, you have to put on so many different hats. You're not only an educator, but you're the administrator. You're the team leader. You're the disciplinarian. You're the budget director. <laughs> you're the partnership coordinator. You're, you're the voice and, and, and the eyes of the school. And it's it's a lot. It's a it's a lot. And there's there's a lot of things on your to-do list and in your email box. And uh, it, it was a very overwhelming job, a very important job, but very different because it was overwhelming. Yeah, I can imagine. So you said before that you're, you were the assistant principal at your high school where you went to high school. So when you went back there as assistant principal, were there any of the, the teachers still working there, still around? Oh, man, let me tell you, when I got there, first I started as a teacher, and I remember there were a lot of teachers who were still there, a lot of my teachers. The most awkward thing was actually referring to somebody as Mr. and Mrs. and saying, you know, um, Mark, it's okay if you call this by your first name. But it took me years. Um, and and what it was very interesting about that is then over my years in the school, from teacher speaking to former teachers and then get this, becoming the supervisor right. of some of my former teachers was mind blowing. <laughs> that, now I was Mr. Williams. <laughs> that, that's like that's like every high school kid's dream. <laughs> yes. yes it was. It was fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. That's funny. Mark, this is the question I've been waiting to ask you. I can imagine there are people who are listening to us right now who are maybe working at a company where, oh, I don't know, maybe they're a, a supervisor or a manager and things are really tough at the company, perhaps layoffs, morale is really low, or maybe people who are members of Toastmasters clubs that aren't performing very well right now and maybe a cynicism has set in. Uh, maybe the members have kind of taken on an identity of uh, we're the club that kind of just doesn't do very much and we don't attract members and we're always on the brink of of failure. And obviously there are lots of variations on a theme of um, uh, different scenarios people listening could be in that uh, have some of those qualities. So how do you, as a leader, go into a situation like that, or maybe you're already in a situation like that, and affect a cultural change? How do you overcome that cynicism and take people from a low point to uh, an area where people are starting to achieve and succeed? I was meeting with a teacher a few weeks ago who fits the description of everything you just described who is feeling very down about her situation. And we had a conversation about why she does what she does. Why did she get into teaching? Why did she, what does she love about teaching? What is she most proud of that she has done in front of the classroom? And when you think about why you do what you wanna do, when you think about what you want to do and how much you love doing it, sometimes we need that reminder. And so a lot of times when I go in and I talk to whether it be students, teachers or anybody, I always like to talk about 
why you love what you do and what you have accomplished so far. Because I never care what it is, whether it be starting your own company or whether it was as my little girl did a couple of years ago and learn how to tie her shoestrings. We've all accomplished something and we need to spend more time talking about and thinking about the things that we've accomplished because they highlight our potential. And then we also have to realize that the mentality of, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can pick up club membership. I don't know if I can start this company. I don't know if I can speak in front of people. I always tell people that we have to realize that all of those thoughts are a choice. We choose what we think. And I remember having this conversation even with my wife about something else earlier this week. We choose what we think. And so when you choose to think positive, when you choose to think positively about what you accomplished, when you choose to think positively about the passion that you have for things, you're always reminded of what you can do. And I always say that we talk a lot about our daily grind and our daily setbacks and our daily challenges, but rarely do we daily talk about the positive things that we are capable of doing. We need to talk about those things more because those are the mental muscles and the mental fuel that keep us going. I'm proud to have created a family environment at my former school. I am proud to have done whatever I was able to do while I was at journalism. I'm proud of what I've been able to do with teachers that I currently work with now because I think what I've been able to do is make people believe that they have something deep down within that can make something incredible without or throughout, I should say. Sorry, that was an English teacher moment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What are you doing now? So what I'm doing now is I'm actually working with professional development. I'm doing professional development in the area of resume writing and interviewing strategies, specifically for teachers who are coming out of schools that are closing or consolidating, and to no fault of their own, they don't have a regular position anymore, and they're looking for a new teaching position, but unfortunately, especially in the teaching profession, some people haven't updated their resumes or gone on interviews in years. So I now have this passionate and, and great mission of helping people to use their communication skills to remarket themselves. So that's what I'm doing in addition to doing everything I can do to get in front of audiences and pursue my career as a professional speaker and trainer. Great. And how could people get in touch with you? Do you have a website or someplace that uh, they can go check you out? I do have a website. It's www.markwilliamsspeaks.com. That's M-A-R-C-W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S-S-P-E-A-K-S dot com. Uh, you can check out my website, uh, which I, uh, is attached to my Twitter feed and my Instagram feed. Um, they can also check out my book, Beyond Limitations, From a Boy um, Without Promise to a Man with Potential. I'm so proud of Beyond Limitations, so I definitely um, suggest that people check that out. But you can check me out at markwilliamspeaks.com. I'd love to hear from anybody and everybody to help everybody. Okay. This has been great, Mark. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Thank you for doing what you do. All right. Take care, Mark. Bye-bye.
Hi, this is Bo Bennett, host of the Toastmasters podcast. Back in 2004, I wrote the book Year to Success, the most complete and practical book on success ever written. Thanks to today's technology, I've turned the book into an online course. Here's the best part. The course is 100% free. Enroll at yeartosuccess.com and work on one personal development idea each day for the next eight months or so. That address is yeartosuccess.com. See you there.